George Bass, naval surgeon, explorer, adventurer, and perhaps a would-be smuggler. Hello, and welcome to Urban Ambling. Today we'll leave Observatory Hill and go back into the valley of the tank stream and return to the Lands Department in Bridge Street. This has been mentioned in earlier episodes. There's a very interesting series of statues in niches uh, on the various uh, facades of that building. The only aspect which is completely filled with 12 statues is the Bridge Street frontage, which is the northern frontage. And we're just going today to just talk about one person whose statue you'll find on the left-hand side as you face the building, the eastern side in that area. And that person is George Bass. Now, he was a quite extraordinary person, and as the heading suggested, he had many talents. He was very highly regarded in his time in New South Wales in the late 1700s. Indeed, a gentleman called Perron, who was a naturalist and historian who accompanied Bodin's French expedition, was in Sydney in 1802, and he met Bass in person. Now, as we all know, the French and the British had their difficulties at that time and probably to some extent still do. But Perron made a note of his meeting with Bass and he said in that that he considered that Bass was one of the most interesting men who had set foot in Australia up to that time. And he said of him that he was a man extraordinary in every respect. It would be pretty hard to get higher praise than that. But the interesting thing about George Bass is, despite the many things that he did, and we're going to just sketch these quickly shortly, he did not receive widespread acclaim at the time, and history tended to put much more focus on Matthew Flinders, who was a, a very good and close friend of his. And Bass always felt that. He, he was a naval surgeon in the Royal Navy. And despite the extraordinary courage he showed in being one of the early explorers of the southeastern coast of Australia, he was never recognised in any way by the Royal Navy. No promotion, no commendation, no nothing. And he, he felt that quite deeply. The other interesting thing, even in later time, as I mentioned, history appears somewhat to have forgotten him because it was not until 1952 that any biography was written, which is really quite extraordinary. Uh, I think in more recent times there's been another one, but as I say, the first one was in 1952. George Bass was born in Lincolnshire and was baptised at the Church of St Dennis on the 3rd of February 1771. He would have been born a few months before. His father died in September 1777, and that left just he and his mother. Uh, she was very devoted to her son, and of course all the more so given the death of her husband. Fortunately, they'd been left in reasonable circumstances, so they weren't living in distress. By pure coincidence, Matthew Flinders, who was about three years younger than Bass, had been born and raised in the town of Donington, which was about eight miles, that'd be 13 kilometres, something like that, 
away. It seems pretty clear that they never met in their youth and they only met when, some years later, Bass set sail on a naval ship called the Reliance for his initial journey to New South Wales. On the 22nd of March, 1787, Bass, who was then but 16, was apprenticed to a Dr Patrick Francis in the town of Boston in Lincolnshire. The way of becoming a doctor in those days is that you did an apprenticeship with a doctor, you were taught all the various procedures, and when you'd finished that, you'd sit some exams in London. Well, that's indeed what Bass did, and after finishing his time with Dr Francis in Boston, he went to London, to a hospital in London, and spent some time there. He then took the exam, which was supervised and set by the Company of Surgeons, and that was the predecessor of what we have now, the College and the Royal College of Surgeons. And he finished his exam successfully on the 2nd of April, 1789, and received the post-nominals of MCS, Member of the Company of Surgeons. He did this when he was only 18. According to the tradition then, he became Mr Bass because surgeons in those days were misters and other doctors were doctors. And interestingly, that habit, procedure, custom, probably is a better word, continued even in Australia uh, probably 20 or 30 years ago that the eminent surgeons made a particular point of dropping the doctor and being mister. And that was, that was a big deal if you were a surgeon who was called mister. Bass had had a longing to go to sea uh, since his youth, but he'd always hesitated to pursue that out of deference to his mother. So he decided that probably the best way to combine that was to join the Royal Navy because that would give his mother some solace but would still give him an opportunity to be at sea. Now, it was then necessary if you wanted to become a naval surgeon that you pass some further exams, which he sat for, and on the 4th of June, 1789, but two months after he'd become a member of the Company of Surgeons, he passed the qualification of surgeon's mate, any rate. Now, what any rate means is in those days, the British Navy classified all their boats in various ratings, which ran from one to about six, and then after that, there were a lot of unrated boats, and it depended on the size and the number of guns and all those things. So he was qualified to be a naval surgeon on any boat. He served on various boats which uh, performed service in mainly in the English Channel because I just forget who were they fighting at that time, whether it was the Spaniards or the French or both. But anyway, that's what he did. But in April 1794, he was transferred to be the surgeon aboard HMS Reliance. And that turned out to be a very happy circumstance for him and a very fortuitous one because of the people who also were travelling on that boat. So he headed for New South Wales. One thing that people had commented on, even at that stage about George Bass, is that when he was on any of the ships, not only did he attend to his surgeon duties, and as one can imagine in those days, trying to maintain an antiseptic area 
would be exceedingly difficult on these old boats with limited space, but he did apparently a very good job. But in addition, he was always keen to learn and he made sure that he learned all the elements of seamanship and navigation. And by the time he got to New South Wales, he was referred to as a skilled navigator as well as a surgeon and physician. Now, by chance, Governor Hunter, who was going to New South Wales to be the second governor, was on board, as was Matthew Flinders. And the three of them uh, hit it off. So Bass had the good fortune that he had a very close relationship with the governor before he arrived in New South Wales, and that was to be to his advantage at later times. Flinders, when he wrote his great book, Voyage to Terror Australis, quite some years later, had this to say of Bass. I had the happiness to find a man whose ardour for discovery was not to be repressed by any obstacle or deterred by any danger. And with this friend, a determination was formed of completing the examination of the east coast of New South Wales by all such opportunities as the duty of the ship and procurable means could admit. Now, they'd obviously been talking about this before they ever left the Thames, and Bass, in fact, set about finding a boat which would be appropriate for their voyages of exploration. Now, obviously, they were travelling on an old sailing boat, so it couldn't be that big, but he found a boat in the Thames which was described as being eight feet of keel and five feet beam. Now, the eight feet of keel doesn't mean that it was only eight feet long, otherwise it would have been a very extraordinary boat if it was eight foot long and five foot wide. It would have been like a barge. But in any event, that was put on board the boat, taken to New South Wales, and in deference and reference to its size, it was nicknamed Tom Thumb, but that was number one. There's an interesting aside to this that there was another person travelling on the Reliance on that voyage, and that was Benelong, who was the Aboriginal who Governor Philip had shanghaied, I suppose is the best description, from his tribe over at Manly Cove, but who then lived with Governor Philip and was of great assistance to the Governor in trying to deal with and make peace with the Aboriginal people. And, of course, Philip was very keen on that. And Benelong also helped the colonists to learn some of the language. Now, Benelong had been taken back to Britain by Arthur Philip when he uh, retired from being governor. Now, how much of a willing participant Benelong was in that, I, I don't know, and that's not the subject of anything we're talking about today. But... Hardly surprisingly, Benelong did not find uh, England and all the strange customs and weather and everything else to his liking, and he, in fact, was in fairly poor health and indeed was not expected to live. But uh, Bass nursed him on the, uh, the boat and on the voyage and got him back to good health. Now, again, typically of Bass, he used that opportunity to learn as much as he could from Benelong about his fellow Aboriginal people and about the language. So here was this man of enormous curiosity, enormous questioning, enormous desire to absorb knowledge, and uh, he never missed any opportunity to do that.
On the 7th of September, 1795, uh, the ship sailed into Port Jackson. The settlement at Sydney by that time had grown to about 3,000 people, which in the space of some seven, seven or eight years was probably not a bad achievement considering all the privations and problems that the small settlement had had. Once again, the extraordinary thing is Bass arrives on the other side of the world in what would have seemed a remote, lonely, isolated and godforsaken place, and he was but 24. Well, they didn't waste any time, Bass and Flinders, and they set off on the 26th of October, 1795, in Tom Thumb I, and they'd rigged up a mast and a sail rather than just rowing it. But we've got to recall that this is basically a not-too-large rowboat that they went out the heads and down to Botany Bay. They found the entrance to the Georges River, which had been visited by others previously, but they rowed up it and went about 20 miles further up the river than anyone had done before. And they there very happily found some good land, which was called cow pastures. Now, what emerged is natives had told some of the white men that there were cattle in that area, and that was confirmed. When Bass and Flinders returned, Hunter was delighted with this news because one of the continuing problems of the settlement was food and just keeping everything going, and he was very keen to try and get these wild herds under control so that they could be used for food. So Hunter then founded the town of Bankstown as, as sort of an outpost to pursue that area, and uh, he went off on an expedition, and Bass accompanied them on that, and uh, they went out to the area of cow pastures, which is now, we'd call it the general area between Campbelltown and Camden. Well, they were back for a while, but not for long, and in March 1796, they sailed with the intent of examining what was thought to be another river mouth, but was in fact Port Hacking, which does have a river flowing into it. But they struck bad weather and ended up going further south and they had to spend one night sheltering behind one of the islands uh, off Port Kembla. They then must have gone to the shore and they met with some natives who guided them to the entrance of what we would call Lake Illawarra, but this hadn't been explored before. And the natives indicated that there was water and some types of food there. Now, that begs the question, of course, is quite how that was communicated, but perhaps Bass, from what he'd learned from Benelong, was able to make a communication. On their return journey, they were struck by another gale. Now, again, there's Bass and Flinders and a young chap called Martin, who had been Bass's assistant since the time he left England. So the three are in this boat, which is really very small in a gale. And Bass held the sail and would just move it, either tightening it or letting it out, depending on what the state of the sea was. And if there was a large swell coming behind them, he'd pull it in a little bit to increase the speed and keep the boat in front of the wave. And whilst he was doing that, 
Flinders was using an oar to steer, and Flinders later commented on the extraordinary seamanship that Bass had displayed in that manoeuvre. Now, the poor lad Martin, I dare say, was absolutely petrified, as any sensible person would be, and his job was just to bail, just try and get as much water out of the boat as they could. And happily, they got into some shelter at a place called Providence Cove, and that is now part of the Royal National Park. They did, with some calmer weather on the way back, go in and explore port hacking and increase the knowledge of the area by doing that. But Bass wasn't just a man who wanted to sail and explore. He also wanted to explore generally, so he decided he'd have a crack with some others at crossing the Blue Mountains. Now, like many before them and many after them till 1815, they didn't make it right through, but they did get over and a bit beyond Mount Tomar, which is a pretty extraordinary achievement at that time. He was back in Sydney and word had been received that it appears there was coal readily available uh, near the seashore uh, uh, in the area which was south of Port Hacking, and that is the area we now call Coal Cliff for the obvious reason. Now, Governor Hunter was very keen to have this examined and to check what was there, both for providing fuel but also providing a, a means of exchange to assist the colony. So Bass went down to Coalcliff and carried out investigations there as to the availability of coal, which was quite apparent. Next was that in the 3rd of December 1797, he set off on what was really a quite extraordinary voyage, one of enormous courage, which would have required incredible seamanship. He and six crewmen who'd volunteered, crewmen from the Royal Navy, they were going with Hunter's blessing, rode out the heads, and I mean rode, and they were in a whale boat, which was about 28 foot, seven inches long. They were called whale boats, and they had a, a stern and a bow, which looked the same. They came to a point at either end. They could have eight rowing points, but it was apparently felt to be better and more controllable with six. The ship had been built in Sydney. It was made of banksia wood and had been lined with cedar. Now, what this simply means, and we should just think about it, is that, again, in what's probably a large rowboat, but is nevertheless a rowboat, the seven of them row out the heads, turn south, really having little idea of what they were going to find. I mean, an extraordinary act of courage. By the 10th of December, about seven days, 1797, they were at Jarvis Bay. The 19th of December, 1797, found them at Twofold Bay, Bay down near Eden. On the 20th of December, 1797, they rounded Cape Howe and thus began travelling in a southwesterly direction which was a starting point for proving Bass's belief that there was, in fact, a body of water running right between the bottom of New South Wales, which in those years included Victoria and Van Diemen's Land. On Christmas Day, uh, 1797, they spent it sheltering from another gale to the north of Ram Head. 
On the 2nd of January, 1798, they saw and later named Wilson's Promontory. Once again, they were confronted with gales and heavy seas. And as I stress again, this is in basically a rowboat in Bass Strait, one of the roughest bodies of water in the world. Now, it was so tough, Bass thought he'd make a go to go across Bass Strait, but they rowed out towards the south, but it was just such appalling conditions they had to turn back. And I imagine the the six rowers would have been absolutely delighted about that. They then reached Western Port Bay and were able in those sheltered waters to stay for some 12 days. And there's a town, one of the tributes, which we have got geographical tributes to Bass, is the town of Bass in Victoria on the eastern side of Western Port Bay uh, commemorates his astonishing feat. And there's also a highway down there called the Bass Highway. From there, they turned their heads for home. And on the 25th of February, 1798, they rode into Port Jackson. Now, I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't get in a rowboat like that. I'd be bad enough in a rough swell in Sydney Harbour, let alone going out to sea. But for most people, you'd probably say, well, you know, I've done that. That's great. I won't press my luck. And what he'd established is because of the swells that were coming along that coast, he was able to quite correctly conclude that it couldn't be a closed body of water and there had to be an opening to uh, the Western Seas. But Bass, you know, not one to give up, not a man to be to be cowed by mere danger, however much it is. So on the 7th of October, 1798, Bass, who was back with Flinders this time, set off in a bark called the Norfolk and the purpose of the voyage, and they were under instructions from Governor Hunter, was to confirm that Bass Strait did exist and then to circumnavigate Tasmania. Now, I won't go into all the details of that. That could occupy chapters of a book. But they went down, they called in at various spots along the coast of Tasmania, but then did the run down the west coast of Tasmania. Now, again... The seas in that area, the weather, are notorious for being difficult. Uh, Flinders later said that a storm which hit them as they were just about to uh, round a southern point of Tasmania so that they could again head east, that if that storm had hit them two hours earlier, they all would have been dead. I mean, that's the astonishing courage of these people. We know one thing from that journey, that Bass had the heart of a poet because he later in part wrote this about his observations of the west coast of Tasmania, or Van Diemen's Land as it was then, a rugged and determined front to the icy regions of the South Pole. To very unusual elevation is added an irregularity of form that justly entitles it to rank among the foremost of the grand and wildly magnificent scenes of nature. Beautiful words. This Christmas was a lot happier than when they were sheltering on the Victorian coast the year before. For on Christmas Day, 1798, they'd found, uh, got into Storm Bay, gone up the what we now call the Derwent, and Bass again 
Why sit round, enjoy Christmas Day, have a bit of food, have a bit of drink like everyone else? No, no. Bass climbs Mount Wellington. I mean, extraordinary stuff. When they returned, Flinders recommended that the new strait be called Bass Strait, and Hunter agreed with that recommendation. And Flinders, uh, to his great credit, said these words of Bass. This was no more than a just tribute to my worthy friend and companion for the extreme dangers and fatigues he'd undergone in first entering it in the whaleboat and to the correct judgment he had formed from various indications of the existence of a wide opening between Van Diemen's Land and New South Wales. Now, Perhaps not surprisingly, all these astonishing adventures and privations and stresses that Bass had put himself under had affected his health and it began to break down. And on the 10th of May 1799, he was invalided from the Reliance and was classified by a very interesting term as being unserviceable. Sounds like a car or boat. He could have gone back to England. He wanted to go back to England and uh, he could have gone back with a Navy boat, but they used to travel down in the Roaring Forties, God forbid, or the Furious Fifties or the Screaming Sixties if they're very unlucky. So he decided, given his health, that he was better taking a more leisurely voyage through the Far East. So he took that journey, leaving on the 4th of August 1800 and returned to England. When he arrived back, he met and fell very much in love with the daughter of a family he knew well. That girl was Elizabeth Waterhouse. And it was somewhat of a whirlwind romance, and they married in a very simple and initially secret service on the 8th of October 1800 at St James Church, Piccadilly. Now, it seems clear that they were both very much in love. But the very sad thing was that Elizabeth and George were only together for about... 10 weeks, for on the 21st of December 1800, he left England again in a ship called the Venus, which he'd acquired for New South Wales. Now, his purpose in going this time was more commercial than exploration or navy. He'd noticed the extreme shortage of, of all sorts of goods in the colony at Sydney, and he'd also seen that when Traders came in with something they'd usually be rushed to buy their goods at very healthy prices. So he'd put together a bit of a syndicate. He'd got money from various friends and acquaintances that enabled him to buy the Venus, and they also loaded it with all the goods and materials which Bass believed would be keenly sought when they arrived at Sydney. So he set off, and the very sad thing is, although neither of them knew it at the time, that they would never see each other again. By the time the Venus arrived back in Sydney, there'd in fact been a lot of materials and goods delivered, and there was a bit of a glut, so there was no market for his goods. Now, this was a crushing blow to Bass. He was a very honourable man. He had all these creditors, the friends who'd put in money into the syndicate, and he just couldn't repay them. But fortunately... Uh, uh, Hunter was there and tried to help him where he could. And what he did do is he allowed him to store his cargo in some of the government warehouses so that he could do short uh, trips out into the islands, the Pacific Islands, 
to mainly pick up salted pork, which was pretty critical for the food supplies of the colony. And that's what he did. He made numerous trips to uh, South Sea Islands doing that. Now, that was sufficient to bring in a little money to keep things going, to send a little bit of money back to his partners, but it wasn't enough to clear the debt. And he he developed the idea that there would be good money to be made by sealing and whaling in the southern waters, the southern island and southern waters of New Zealand. And he uh, discussed that with the governor and was ultimately granted some rights to conduct those activities in that area, and they were exclusive rights. There's also a suggestion that that wasn't his only purpose in making this voyage, uh, and the fairly strong suggestion is that he'd taken some of the goods that he'd brought before out of the warehouse and he was going to go on to South America, which was then controlled completely by the Spaniards on the western side, and uh, sell these goods, and they would be contraband because Spain wouldn't allow it. Now, that was a very dangerous thing to do, and it's probably a measure of how desperate he was to, to clear the slate. So it came to pass that on the 5th of February, 1803, the Venus, with Bass and his crew on board, sailed from Sydney Harbour, and it was never heard of again. No one knows what happened. For a while, there were all sorts of rumours that, in fact, they had got to South America, that the ship had been seized by the Spanish, the crew had been taken away and sent to the silver mines in Peru. All sorts of various theories were around, but the general and probably most probable view is that the ship probably uh, perished on those very dangerous uh, shores and seas of around uh, the South Island of New Zealand. Now, the extraordinary thing about this, that when Bass disappeared, he was 32. So in a very short life, he'd achieved an enormous amount. And it really makes one very humble when you look at your own life to look at the astonishing things people such as George Bass achieved in very short life spans. He's been described in many ways, and we've referred to a few of them above, but some of the descriptions that were applied to him were ingenious, enterprising, and remarkable. And one thing that should be said, that apart from all his other capabilities and skills, Bass was also interested in natural history and he was always collecting specimens, making observations wherever he went. And Bass has the distinction of being the first person who ever described the wombat. So when you're standing there, uh, hopefully on a beautiful sunny day and looking up at all those statues, spare a thought for an extraordinary man who did a great deal to explore the very infant colony. He was a remarkable man. And just before we close for today, I happened to come across recently an interesting tidbit, which is probably a good way to finish, uh, and it does relate to the lands department, because it appears that oranges were introduced to the colony by the Reverend Richard Johnson. Now, he was the 
chaplain to the First Fleet and he was the first chaplain of the colony. And there's indeed a monument to him up in Richard Johnson Place, which is the intersection of Bly Street, Castlereagh Street and Hunter Street. But apparently Johnson on the trip out in the First Fleet obtained some orange seeds. Now, whether he collected the seeds deliberately or whether he bought oranges and saved the seeds, however it happened, probably in Rio de Janeiro, he brought them back and he planted them. Uh, and he was very successful at growing oranges, and he did that at his garden, and he lived somewhere about where the lands department is. And this became quite a, uh, a good little business for him on the side because his oranges were apparently pretty good, and he sold them for good prices. And he was apparently a fairly astute businessman, and by the time he came to leave the colony, he'd managed to put away quite a bit of money. So that's it. For this time, stay healthy, stay well, stay happy, and make sure you've got time for ambling. My best wishes and cheerio from Makato.